Welcome back to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined, as always, by my colleague, Stuart Mandel. Uh, Stuart, we're getting close to the start of the season. We have a bunch to get into before that. I do have a question for you, though, and this relates to something we've talked about a little bit before this offseason, as it relates to what's been a pretty ugly offseason for the Gators under Dan Mullen. And this week, there was another ugly allegation that had come out involving actually probably the the best player of now four players and that doesn't include a staffer who had allegations that were pretty ugly involving sexual violence against a woman in the case of this it, it had come out i guess it was on tuesday from the report against john huggins a defensive back who was accused of choking his tutor in october she did not pursue criminal charges, but this player was ended up sat out for five games. Um, it's actually, like I said, the fifth accusation of violence or a threat of violence against a woman in Mullen's year and a half tenure. This particular woman is a 19-year-old student and said that he had choked her. And Mullen, when he was asked about this this week, said that it's all been handled. And he said he had great clarity on Huggins' status because this player is, is not practicing now, but he's still with the program. Mullen had a line that he said in this, which I think is kind of, I don't know, it, it doesn't, it, sm- it smells funny to me. It's, it's obviously I'm a big anti-violence against women person. And I think this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. He ended up, he got some blowback when he took Jeffrey Simmons, who had a really violent incident with a woman. And there was a video of that. Jeffrey Simmons went to Mississippi State and by all accounts handled himself quite well. But in the case of some of these other instances, this player he kept, he has kept in the program. It's really a month into his, his first season there. The question is, what kind of message are you sending if you can have somebody get accused of choking a woman and you sit him out, but he's still with the program? First of all, I'm surprised that this is still somewhat flying under the radar. You know, it's always been a a curious thing to me why certain scandals blow up like the Baylor one did and others. You know, this is a big story in Gainesville right now. I don't know that it's gotten much attention nationally, but you're right. The circumstances with John Huggins are awfully troubling, and it's a little bit confusing because, like you said, it happened in October, and he was seemingly punished for it during the season last year, but now he's not with the team again now, and Mullen insists that it has nothing to do with that incident. So we don't. So now maybe we uh, don't know what's going on with him currently, but at the end of the day, like you said, this is actually the fifth player since he's been there to be accused of violence against a woman the first four are no longer with the team. Huggins still is. And that's a lot of incidents in a very uh, short period of time. I thought that his comment that you brought up was just another example of coaches who pay lip service to what's a very important issue. You know, Obviously, Urban Meyer took a lot of flack because he had made such a big deal out of his core value You know, that was written on the wall of their meeting room, that he wouldn't tolerate violence against women. So that when the Zach Smith stuff blew up, it kind of came back and haunted him. I feel like Dan Mullen's just saying this because he knows he's supposed to say it. His actions do not reflect somebody who has any sort of zero tolerance policy against violence against women. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's troubling just that we're not in 2008 anymore, you know, and you're wondering how much further we've come. And as you said, 
many of these players, except for the except for Huggins, are no longer with the program. Huggins still is, and by all accounts, look, you can read for more detail. Our colleague uh, Will Salmon had a had a more in depth look at this story that went up on the Athletic on Wednesday. And John Huggins is, by all accounts, the player they most likely will count on. I mean, Jalen Jones was a quarterback. He's since gone. There was a defensive back who was not a you – know, Some most of these guys were guys Dan Mullen brought in. The cornerback or defensive back who transferred to, I think, a Mac school, that guy was a McElwain recruit, I believe. And so – but He, again, actually, he is, actually transferred to play for McElwain at Central play, Michigan. Yeah, correct. And so he followed him. But – this is the one guy who, you know, as somebody sent it, because uh, I tweeted out the story after I read it this morning and said, how many are still on the team? Well, the one who is still on the team is the one who is the guy he's most likely counting on to help him. Now, we'll see how it plays out, what, you know, what happens next. But I do think the story, like you said, that in this day and age, I think we need to monitor it and keep an eye on it. And it's something that years ago, maybe these things would get swept under the rug from a uh, coverage standpoint, and that's not the case anymore. And then keep in mind, this is the second time this offseason that we're having a discussion about Dan Mullen and off-the-field issues at Florida. You know, you remember Chris Steele, the five-star cornerback who transferred first to Oregon, or said he was going to go to Oregon, and then ended up at USC, and he was actually just this week, got his um, immediate eligibility waiver granted, and his stated reason was that at Florida, he was a roommate of Jalen Jones, one of the players that you mentioned that, that is no longer with the program, and that he had gone to Mullins, that he was uncomfortable rooming with him before the incident in question, and then and Mullins didn't do anything about it, and then that happened and he was gone. So I guess, how much longer will Mullins be Teflon there? I know he's only entering his second season. It, I, you know, I, I hate to be totally cynical about this, but I think it's as simple as he had a promising first season. He goes out and wins 10 games, 11 games, Beats, upsets Georgia, something like that, the fans aren't going to care about any of this. Uh, if It's only if he struggles on the field that then this will compound it. Right. Now, obviously, if there's more instances that keep coming out, like you said, this is not the first time we've talked about it, but this instant on the back of some of those other things and the fact that it was it actually happened in October and now comes out with some of the details, like I said, it doesn't pass the smell test, and I think it becomes more disturbing on the backs of those other things. If this keeps happening, I think now this is on people's radar. I mean, look, it's not, I don't think it's fair to compare it to the Baylor situation as that was. The one thing I will say about it is it's like, I don't know what the tipping point between the, when these stories happen, because you can, you can discipline and punish the players. I mean, it's who you're bringing in. I mean, ultimately I think when you, you know, you mentioned Urban Meyer and his tenure at Florida, one of the things that you know came back to bite him a lot was clearly they rolled the dice on some shaky character guys, and not to say all those shaky character guys turned out to be turned out to be bad actors once they got to Gainesville. But again, I think it's a different day and age, and to compared to a 2008 or 2006 of the climate around around these programs. And even then, you know, for all the stuff that was going on in his in Urban Meyer's Florida program. Really, that didn't become a big storyline until after the fact, until after he was gone. At the time, it just kind of got uh, drowned out by the fact that they were winning national championships. Um, I guess if I think more about it in terms of the question of why does something rise to scandal level, it's really players getting in trouble 
doesn't usually come back to the coach all that much. It's if the coach is actually accused of doing something wrong, right? So Art Bryles was accused of, and in that Pepper Hamilton report flat out describes that he, the coaching staff getting directly involved in, in Title IX investigations. Of course, he disputes all of that. I saw the, the, the scrum he had with, his, with the media at his first high school practice. But anyway, that's what was reported and, and concluded there. Urban Meyer, that became an explosive scandal because, at least at first, there, there were accusations that, that he was interfering with a sexual assault investigation involving Zach Smith. That did not turn out to be the case, but it turned out to be enough stuff going on with Zach Smith that he was found culpable for just for employing him for as long as he did. Right now, Dan Mullen, I guess, you know, other than that Chris Steele thing I brought up, is not directly implicated in any of this other than being the guy who is recruiting them to the team. I think where it blows up is if something comes out along the way that where Mullen should have known better and didn't do something, and uh, we'll see what more comes out to the story. Yeah, I'm curious. You made an interesting point in there before about the Florida stuff under Urban Meyer, and it really didn't seem like it blew up after the fact. Some of this stuff got reported. I, I remember, you know, the Chris Rainey text, the time to die blank, oh, yeah. you know, text and, and something several other Ronnie Wilson stuff. You know, our our friend Andy Staples can who, who covered that team can talk chapter and verse about it. I do wonder if like I said, this this goes back to why I think we're in a different time now in the media than just a decade ago. If that stuff is more gets scrutinized scrutinized much more in real time now than it did back then where yeah if your team is winning you know because we still see this with a lot of you know Baylor fans because our brows took them to a level that they'd never been at before and it wasn't like they were they were backsliding when he was in the middle it wasn't like he, they were you know five and seven and then all of a sudden this blew up I I do think that this stuff is more likely to get traction from from the coverage and from the blowback and quite honestly i think some of this happens with social media i think it happens there's a lot more advocacy people you know it's there's a you know it's not just brenda tracy there's a handful of other people who go out and speak about these issues and this is to me is a very specific issue when it comes to how people treat women more than just okay this kid got caught stealing this kid got caught with a bunch of marijuana or what, or, or even a DUI. Am I wrong on that? Or do you, do you think that, that, that there, it falls into a different category? Cause I, that's how my perception of it is. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. 10 years ago, maybe even more recent than that, any disciplinary issue, small or big, just kind of got all lumped together. Um, I do think that there's a special emphasis finally should be deservedly so on the issues of violence and, and sexual assault against women. So, so that makes it get more headlines. But like I said, in terms of there actually being any repercussions for Dan Mullen or that program, I don't think we're there yet. People, I mean, look, Scott Strickland was his AD at Mississippi State, and he signed off on him keeping Jeffrey Simmons there. So, so far, no indication that he's in any trouble with his boss in Gainesville. Back to the podcast in a second, but first, Bruce... Are you planning to play fantasy football this year? I'm planning to, but as we know, the schedule can get a little hairy sometimes. Well, sometimes I'm, I don't fall through. Well, I'm about to tell you about an app that you can enter this fantasy football league sitting at an airport gate or on your plane. It's just so easy to do this with Draft. If you love fantasy football, 
then you need to enter the $3.5 million best ball championship on draft. That's right, $3.5 million in real money. So if, I, if I'm really good at this, we can make millions of dollars from this? Are you serious? That's correct. It's season long, but with no management. You just set your lineup and forget it. Once you're done drafting, that's it. No trades, no waiver wire. You don't have to set your lineup. Your best players get automatically started. You get the best score every week, guaranteed. There's no salary caps. You play in a real, live snake draft, just like you play with your friends in a season-long league. So I went on there, I press a button, and I start picking my team, and bam, I'm entered in the league. Uh, so you don't have to babysit your roster all the time. You don't have to wait for your buddy in Arkansas to make his pick so that you can make your pick so that the next guy can make your pick. It's immediate. There's no better place to play than on draft. You can draft a team anytime you want. Leagues start every couple minutes, so you could join one right now. Just do a draft, and you could be a millionaire 16 weeks later. It doesn't get any easier than that. It's the highest-rated fantasy app, and it's available on the App Store and Google Play or online at draft.com. So here's what you do. For a limited time only, you can get free entry into the Best Ball Championship when you make your first deposit, but you have to use the promo code AUDIBLE. That's right, a free shot at a million dollars just by using promo code AUDIBLE when you make your first deposit on Draft. Just search Draft in the App Store or go to draft.com and play free with promo code AUDIBLE. Switching subjects, you actually were spent the first part of this week in Nashville uh, for an event that I don't think most, any, <laughs> college football fans even know takes place. Describe it for us. Yeah, so it's called the Personnel Symposium. It's kind of the brainchild of two guys who are the godfathers of a relatively young industry. And that is the recruiting slash personnel people who, and there's actually a lot of them on staff. So it's not just like Alabama and Ohio State have a lot of these staffs. There's a lot of schools that have, you know, five, six, ten people in the recruiting operation. Many of them are very young. And it's fascinating. So the two people who kind of, created this event uh last year was the first year it was in nashville this year was back in nashville and there was almost twice as many people attended it this year than last year and the speakers i would say were better it grew a lot in the last in the last years was ed manowitz who alabama fans probably will know or ucf fans will know who that that was he was basically helped run save nick saban's recruiting operation and also worked with chip kelly with the eagles after that and then return back to Alabama. Now he's no longer at Alabama in that capacity, but Ed is really kind of the, the mentor to like half that industry. I mean, you could look at Tennessee, South Carolina, Texas, there's all these guys who've worked under him who are now, and women who, who are now in that field. And the other one is Mark Pantone, who Ohio State and Florida folks will know, who's really started out at a very young age under Urban Meyer and has, he's still, you know, he's, he's still the, the head of the recruiting operation now under Ryan Day. And so to see how this thing has grown and to see not just like what they're looking for in best practice, but I, I think it's a fascinating rabbit hole to go down because, you know, for me as a, as a reporter, it's proven to be very beneficial, especially my role with, with Fox Sports doing games, because with the possible exception of the strength coach, almost nobody knows these kids and their backstories the way these folks in the personnel and recruiting departments know it. And so 
you know, it's an invaluable resource for me. And I ended up moderating a couple of panels. One was, was, on, was really on the group of five personnel people where the staffs are way smaller and you have to, you know, you, maybe you're just, you're not relying on full-time employees. You're recruiting students to do a lot of the work. And there's a lot of one man banding what you have to do. You know, one of the, one of the people on my panel was, is now at Arkansas, but was at University of Louisiana. Another, another guy, Andrew Blaylock is at App State. There were guys both from USF and UCF on that panel. So it was fascinating to hear all these different perspectives. And then also really interesting to hear a lot of stuff that, you know, in the, just either at the bar that night, just to kind of, you know, schmooze with people and get, get the perspective on what they do. And also I thought was interesting is where do you go with this? A bunch of these people I think would someday like to be GMs in the NFL. Maybe a few want to be ADs, but it's just like, where do you go after you do this? And what I think is really interesting, I've wondered about this as, as actually a story that I had kicked around a story idea for a few years is, you know, obviously our profession as sports writers and the media is very challenging in terms of career opportunities and newspapers are dying and all those other things. I think that if I, I was 15, 18, 20 years old now, I would think about going this route because if you love football, you really are passionate about it. I think this could be a really interesting place to to launch a career and go in and go and do that. Um, now there's obviously you need to surround yourself with really, really smart people and you need to be creative. And I think you need to ha be used to have and working all hours possibly and, and whatnot. And it can be a little bit of a thankless job, but I think there's, you know, to me, that would, that would probably be something I would have been interested in if I, you know, if I was coming up 25 years later. Breaking news. There's an alternate universe where Bruce Feldman would not have actually been a sports writer. Yeah, I really think that. I mean, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by that world, and I think that there's a lot of really smart people in it. And there's a guy I met last year. His name is John Yetzi. He's at Virginia Tech, and he came up to me in one of the breaks, and he said, "I read Meat Market when I was like in junior high school," and he was like, "This is what I want to do." And there was a guy in there, Kent McLeod, who's Cutcliffe's right hand guy, who was at Duke. Now Kent wasn't there this week at, in Nashville, but. There's a lot of people who are kind of like John, who grew up aspiring to go do this. They don't want to coach. Now, there's a handful of guys like there's a the recruiting guy at NC State, uh, Billy Glasscock. He is he was on the field. He coached at, at mid-level schools and junior colleges. And, and there's a bunch of folks who have the on the field coaching. But for the most part, most of the people in there started out as student workers and really grassroots people. And it's also another profession that it's not just a bunch of guys. There's a lot of women who have who've gravitated to it as well. So it's, you know, it's a part, like you said, it's part of, of college football that I'm not sure how many people know about it. And it was, it's really cool to see how much it's grown just in the last year. Okay. And we also actually have some real breaking news, minor breaking news during, while we started recording this podcast, the SEC put out its 2020 schedule and it has an interesting wrinkle. It's always uh, kind of a running joke that the week before Thanksgiving is, is uh, FCS bye week in the SEC. Well, next year, they're going to have Alabama, Texas A&M, and Auburn LSU the week before the Iron Bowl. According to Brett McMurphy, it'll be the first time since 2008 that Alabama and Auburn will not play an FCS opponent the week before the Iron Bowl. I wonder if 
the conference finally got sick of hearing about how they, they make it too easy for their teams by giving them that de facto bye week. For whatever reason, I'm glad to see it. I think it's a win-win for, for all the college football and stuff like that happens. The other um, development related to that is that the Georgia-Auburn game, which has always been in mid-November, is moving to October. It's always been kind of a talking point that fans of other conferences throw out there, right? That, you know, while the SEC, part of the reason they're so successful is they game the system. They, they give their teams. Now, other conferences are playing those same kind of opponents, but they're doing it in early September. I've always said that while it bugs me as a fan and a viewer that you get to that important part of the season and those teams are playing nobodies, it's probably smart as a, as a scheduling strategy um, let other teams battle it out and lose, and while your teams are allowing your get teams to move back up in the rankings. It also gives your team a chance physically to probably recoup and rest because maybe you're only playing your starters a half. Now, before we give them too much credit, the reason they're able to do this is because, like this year, it's a just the way the calendar falls, it's a 15-week season instead of a 14-week. So, I mean, Alabama's still playing UT Martin. It's just that now it's the week between the LSU game and the Texas A&M game rather than the week right before the Auburn game. I would guess this also television plays a big part in this. You know, they would get to that week and there would be nothing for the SEC on CBS would get a decent game and ESPN might get a decent game. And there's nothing left for the SEC network. So this makes it a little bit, a little bit deeper. I feel like this is one of those stories that will make for three days of programming on Feinbaum and that most of our audience listening does not care. <laughs> so but worth noting, it'll be, it'll be notable when we get there in 2020. Let's do mailbag. As always, you can send your questions to us at theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Uh, this question is from a familiar name to us, Parrish Walton. Bruce and Stu, it seems to me that Nebraska is getting a bit too much preseason love as we head into fall camp. Yeah, the offense is going to be good. Provided Martinez, that's Adrian Martinez, their quarterback, is healthy. But the defense seems to lack dynamic playmakers in the front seven. Perhaps my pessimism is kicking in, but I see a few 38-31 losses in Nebraska's season. Am I wrong to assume the defense is going to let us to let them down? Why do you two think Nebraska is getting the love it is from many in the media, especially given the advanced stat side of the CFB media aisle, is far more skeptical of the Huskers? Stu, why don't you go first? I have some strong thoughts on them. I think that it's mostly just blind faith in Scott Frost. Everybody remembers that, that they made this huge improvement from year one to year two at UCF, and, and obviously that led to the undefeated season. I don't think anybody thinks Nebraska is going to go from 4-8 and eight to undefeated, but they expect a pretty big jump. Also, I think in that division, especially coming off a down year for Wisconsin, there's not there's a feeling that it's not like there's an obvious team that's much that's definitely going to be better than them. I disagree. I, I I do think they'll be better. I don't know that we're yet at a point to definitely say Nebraska will be better than Iowa or better than Wisconsin. Minnesota's in the mix in that division. Northwestern, obviously. Purdue, even. So, you know, I think they'll be better. Uh, but no, I'm not on the Nebraska will win the West uh, bandwagon for the reasons he said. You know, Adrian Martinez is great. I think they'll, this being a Scott Frost offense, it'll be... They'll score a lot of points, but the defense has been so bad uh, for the past several years that improvement for them is probably not going to, it's still probably going to be, I don't know, I mean, what, what your hope, best hope is that they'll be average on defense or mediocre. I, I don't think they're going to be a dominant defense yet by any means. Now, I will turn the microphone to the world's biggest 
Nebraska <laughs> believer, especially Adrian Martinez. You said something to me recently about him that was a pretty bold uh, proclamation. Okay, so that bold proclamation, I think, is going to end up in our conference previews that will run on The Athletic next week. Am I correct? That's correct. Okay. So you'll have to read about that. Uh, by the way, the bold proclamation is not that Adrian's going to win the Heisman in 2019, but it's still pretty bold. Look, I, don't, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I don't think it's total blind faith in Scott Frost. I think Adrian Martinez is a big reason for a lot of that faith. I mean, if you have a great quarterback, I think that accelerates everything. And I think he is, I've been around him a decent amount. I think he's a great quarterback. I really think he's going to be special. He is a perfect fit for not just that system, but for that program, what they're doing. I think a lot of what you said is true with the defense, but I, you know, one thing that I think is critical there is this is some continuity finally that they have. I mean, it was such a revolving door in Lincoln there. Uh, they do have a bunch of D linemen who I think are, are very good and a good amount of experience in the secondary. I do not think they're going to be a dominant defense, no, but I think they'll be a pretty good defense. I think that what you've seen, and just from you know being around the program a little bit and talking to a lot of people inside the program, I think they have made big strides from the team at the end of the year. And there, to me, there does seem to be a little bit of parallel with Scott Frost's program and his mentor's program at UCLA. They were much different by the end of the year than they were in the beginning when they were struggling to even get a win. And again, we saw them the week after. It was the game after, I should say, because it was a bye week for Ohio State. But after Ohio State got blown out by, at Purdue. And that was a, you know, everybody expected them to blow Nebraska out, and it didn't happen. And Nebraska had a couple, of, you know, quirky things go their way, or else they probably win that game. Again, I don't think they're a top 10 team, but I think they're a team that can win eight, nine games this year because I think they have enough players on defense, guys with experience, guys who now know the system. Again, it was a revolving door in there. I'm trying to remember who the D lineman was I interviewed there last spring. He was a good player. He, I think he had like five different D-line coaches in, in five years and may have had four different coordinators. I mean, it's hard to be any good when you have that kind of change, right? So um, count me in. I'm on the bandwagon. I've been fairly vocal about it. I'm not going to bail off it now. Also, by the way, Stu, when you look at their schedule, it sets up reasonably well. I mean, yeah, they got to play Ohio State, but it's in Lincoln. They don't have to play Penn State. They don't have to play Michigan. I mean, those are positives. You know, you look, they get Wisconsin, who for probably most people think is the – they get Wisconsin and Iowa and Northwestern. I would say those are probably the three favorites beyond them in the West. They all have to go to Lincoln. So yeah, It's a much more know, favorable schedule. Yeah, you, going into last season – you would look at their schedule and win. So this one's definitely more favorable. Interesting week two game, by the way. Nebraska at Colorado, renewing the uh, the old uh, Big 8 rivalry. That last year's game went right down the last second, and LaVisca Chenault made that great catch. You know, it's going to be an interesting kind of litmus test game for both teams. And it's my cruise game, so I, I could not be more excited to get to Boulder for that matchup. That, that, that's awesome. You guys will be going head-to-head with the... Um, Clemson A&M game, though. Sorry about that. It's okay. That's why you have picture-in-picture. That's picture, why you have picture-in-picture picture and remote controls. All I care about, Stu, is that you'll have the volume on our broadcast to listen to Joe Davis and Brock Hewitt. As always, I will be... I always keep a close eye out for when they cut to you. I will not be being fed dog biscuits or whatever they threw at me at the uh, USC 
Colorado game that night. Um, okay, moving along. Let me ask you this one from Ethan Sislagi. Thank you for doing the phonetics there, Ethan. Bruce and Stu, I'm a grad of an SEC school and have recently realized that the team continues recruiting 25-man classes and after a number of players from the prior year roster coincidentally decide to transfer, there are exactly 85 players on the roster for the fall. One is only left with the impression that the lower-performing players are told they will not play and should consider other options, yet I rarely hear this discussed openly. Question, is it considered unethical to weed out lower-performing players in order to churn the roster? For college students on scholarship, something doesn't seem right about running off a player who simply fails to advance his game to the next level. This is a good question. I think, uh, look, everywhere players and programs have these exit interviews. And it's not necessarily exit meaning you're leaving the program because you just graduated or your eligibility's up. But it's just like, hey, these are the things we need you think we need you to work on or this is where we see you fitting in. And I think this is pretty common. You know, the question is, if it's a player saying, okay, I want to be at this school. This is the school I grew up rooting for. This is a degree I want to finish. I probably won't play here. The question is, what does that program do? Is, you know, there's probably, it doesn't take too much of a cynic to say, okay, they may ask this kid to take a medical and, and that way he doesn't play and ends his career. And, and, you know, maybe it's genuine, maybe it's not. I don't know. But I mean, I have a feeling like of this, I'm trying to be, you know, careful how I put it. Does this fit into the category of running off a player in your mind? Yeah, I mean, he says he doesn't hear much about it, but I would say around 20. This came up a lot. Yeah, yeah, there was a there was a one or two year moment in time when oversigning became a very hot topic, and and it actually led to changes in the rules. I think it was actually your guy Houston Nutt who caused this to be to be become the issue that it did when he let's see it was 20, 2009 he announced a signing class of 38 players obviously the scholarship limit has always been 25 but at that time you could sign however many you want if you thought that some of them aren't going to qualify or uh you know whatever it would take to get it down to 25 so starting with that and then and then i think just nick saban took a lot of flack for signing big classes um, allegations that he was running guys off. So, I mean, I think it started with the SEC. They changed their rules, limiting how many you could sign, and then the NCA followed suit. And now you literally can only sign 25. But, obviously, if you sign 25 four years in a row, that's 100. you got to get it down to 85. And like, like Ethan said, it seems to magically work itself out every year. So I think most of it is probably pretty innocent. Like you said, in the spring, after spring practice, every team... Coach sits down with every player on the roster and tells them where they stand. And if they tell you, you're just not going to play here, most people are going to transfer. But obviously, like you said, there are cases where somebody's going to say, I'm fine with that. And then what do they do? Do they find excuses to run them off? You know, usually, as long as the guy is doing his part academically and is a good presence in the locker room, then it would be an awfully bad look to tell the guy you can't finish here and get your college degree here. I mean, would you feel, Would how would you feel if they said, okay, we're going to put you on a uh, medical hardship and where you be, basically finish your, you can finish your degree, but you're not going to be with the team. If there's a legitimate, you know, and that's something that I think gets abused too. If there's a legitimate medical reason why you'd never be able to play again, then you should, you can use that. But what happens if there's, what happens if it's kind of sketchy? I mean, look, there's, it's football. You could say, okay, this person has a knee injury or a back injury or something 
I mean, do you remember a few years ago, Ohio State tried to do this with Jamel Dean, who actually ended up being a really good player at Auburn, but they declared him medically disqualified for a knee injury before he even started playing, I think his freshman year. And clearly he wasn't clearly he wasn't medically disqualified. But this may not fit in the same category. Like, there are some cases where one school's doctors clear somebody and another school's won't. I don't know if this was this, if this fits into the category. In my head, I was I was doing which was okay. We're gonna we took you because we thought you were gonna be a, a better player than you probably turned out to be, and that's on us. We're going to still honor the scholarship. You can finish your degree but you can't be part of the program as a football player. Maybe I'm, you know, I don't know. Maybe this is me being too, too cynical. Or oh, I think, I, yeah, I think that, ha- I think you're right. I think that happens all the time. And I don't uh, have, I, I don't have as much of a problem with that. Oh, I thought you were getting at, you did have a problem with it. No, I really don't. Because if you, because if you're still getting your degree and the school is going to pay for you to get it, I guess it just makes know. me uncomfortable because at the end of the day, they're still doing that, not out of the goodness of their heart for the player, but because they want to free up a scholarship. Well, if, if they weren't giving the kid, if they were just taking the kid's opportunity to finish his degree and being paid for, you know, then that's different. But if the school is honoring it, I don't really have a big problem with that. I'm not going to get worked up over that. All right, Stu, this question is from Josh Peterson. I have long thought that a college football premier league isn't the most ridiculous idea. And I've had a lot of fun discussing with friends and coworkers. One form of pushback that I always get is what happens to basketball, baseball, etc. For example, if Nebraska, Iowa, and Wisconsin separate in football, why should Purdue, Northwestern, or anyone else left on the cutting room floor in the Big Ten continue to put up with them for a lack of a better term in the other sports? I always figure the dollars and cents of something like March Madness would keep everything else together, but they're not so sure. What so he's think, re- he's referring to the article I did a couple weeks ago that was part of our realignment blitz, where I laid out five possible scenarios for the future, and the most extreme one was where the I the number I did was twenty eight, but it could also be twenty four or thirty two. You know, the most prestigious big name brand programs break off in football only. And form their own their own league, but you know, in my scenario, where they was, you know, Ohio State would go go join this league with USC and Texas and whatnot, but they'd still be in the Big Ten and the other sports. It's a legitimate question. You know, obviously, the rest of the Big Ten would not be thrilled about that, and you know, would they consider kicking them out? Sure, but like Josh alludes to, I don't think that would. I think the reason that wouldn't happen is because it would they would be costing themselves money because you know Ohio State. Uh, in particular, well, I'll use the schools he gave, Nebraska, Iowa, and Wisconsin. Wisconsin's a really good basketball program. Iowa, not so much. Nebraska, not so much. However, those are still really big fan bases. So when you go to do your TV contract, those schools are are helping, uh, are still kind of subsidizing some of the other ones. You know, people aren't, uh, Fox and ESPN aren't spending all that money to show Northwestern basketball or, or uh, you know, some of the other less appealing you know, programs, they want those big fan bases, those big national fan bases. And then, of course, March Madness is locked in for the next 20 years, I believe, or almost 20 years. It's the most, you know, one of the most popular sporting events in America. And you're really going to say, like, you guys can't be part of this anymore? Um, I don't think, I think that tournament would lose a lot of appeal if those big brand name programs weren't in it anymore. So, 
Um, like I said, that was a that was a fantasy scenario. Uh, some people think it's more realistic than others. Um, and, and if it doesn't happen or if it never happens, then it'll probably be in part because the schools have relationships that go back a long time with the other schools and their conferences. And maybe as much money as they might make doing that, they don't want to screw over their, their friends on the other campuses. Mm-hmm. All right, Stu, I got another question. This is from Joe Almond. I am a Cincinnati grad, 1985, and have watched UC improve facilities and strive to become relevant year after year. Will a regional school like UC ever be able to break through into the upper echelon in the playoff era? The Big East allowed access in the past, but it no longer seems possible. Stu, so you didn't go to Cincinnati, but you grew up around it. So The first college about- football game I ever attended was a UC Rutgers game in, I want to say, 88 or 89. It was so long ago that the game was a tie. And that was at Dippert Stadium many generations ago. It's interesting he asks us this year, at this particular moment, because this is the 10-year anniversary of the 2009 Cincinnati team with Brian Kelly that went 12-0 in the regular season and I believe finished number three in the final BCS rankings. They, so you remember that last night of the season, Nebraska-Texas goes right down to the wire. Texas finally prevails on that field goal with one second left after they got the second back on the clock. If they had lost, there was a very real possibility that Cincinnati or TCU would have played in the national title game. I don't think that's possible in this configuration. The Big East was a BCS, a BCS conference. It was viewed, while it was probably viewed as one of the weaker ones, it was still viewed as being a power conference in that structure. Obviously, the American is not. You know, in those days, Cincinnati would play West Virginia, Louisville, a couple programs are more respected than the ones they're playing now. So I think the only way they would become nationally relevant again, well, they could become nationally relevant this year if they have the kind of season I think they will. Well, they play, look, they play UCLA on a Thursday night, and then they play Ohio State. Let's say, let's play the hypothetical game. Now, UCLA, I think, will be better, but they came off a three and nine year. Them beating them in in week one is not going to, like, shock the world. Uh, People are going to expect it. But if they go to if they go beat Ohio State and Ohio State, let's say UCLA goes and becomes a bowl team and wins seven or eight games after losing that game, and maybe turns around and beats Oklahoma or something, and if Ohio State still wins the Big Ten, what do we say about Luke Fickle's team then? This, what do you this think, exact what do you scenario was thrown out to me in my written mailbag this week, and I said they would probably have the they would probably have the best claim any, anyone's had to this point. A group of five team. Has had to this point if they could go on, if they could win at Ohio State, beat UCLA, win at Ohio State, and then go on to go undefeated because there will be a couple teams they'll play. You know, UCF will probably be ranked when they play them. Maybe Memphis or somebody like that will be ranked when they play them. They would have a pretty strong case. Now I think it would kind of have to be one of those perfect storm situations where, you know, is, is an undefeated Cincinnati team going to beat out uh, a 12 and one Power Five champion? Probably not. It would have to be a situation where. The, the fourth spot is between them and a team that didn't win its conference or a team that is 11 and two and won its conference to this point though. I mean, you know, the, the recurring theme of the committee, they don't treat the group of five teams as highly as maybe the traditional polls. And certainly the, the BCS did, they hold their schedule strength against them. They certainly have against UCF and frustrating me and a lot of people is that they don't release publicly the schedule rankings that they use. 
There was a there was a week last year where Rob Mullins alluded to somebody's schedule being rated higher than another's, and the immediate question was, "What are they ranked? Can you please tell us?" Um, but they won't. So that can I ask know. you a uh, hypothetical here? And it's it's entirely hypothetical. We're like, this is you know the nature of Joe's question a little bit, or to some degree, playing off it. Let's say UCLA goes eight and four and beats Oklahoma, which is a home game for them. The Cincinnati game is a road game. So you say it would be eight and four with a win over Oklahoma. Ohio State would go twelve and one, win the Big Ten, but their lone loss would be against Cincinnati. And Cincinnati runs the table. I don't know where but Houston's a road game. Houston I think is pretty good. USF is a road game. I think USF will be decent and Memphis is a road game. And then whoever they get in the conference title. They have the chance, I would say, of those three opponents. They have a chance for at least one of those con- those in-conference teams to be ranked, maybe two. But let's say there's one. Do you think they would have, like, and obviously you don't know what's going to be related to the other Power Five, the Power Five champ- conference champs. If that scenario happened, I think they would have an, at least an outside shot of cracking the top four. I think if that, ha- the way you just described it, it, there would be so much pressure on the committee to include them. Because, you know, these UCF teams, they didn't have anything close to what you're describing. Be going and beating a twelve and you, did you just say you it, that that would be Ohio State's only loss? If that would be Ohio State's only loss, and if UCLA was an eight win team, especially if UCLA somehow beats Oklahoma at home, I mean, if, then I'm talking about then you would have basically. And again, I don't know what's going to happen with Texas or in Oklahoma or the Big Twelve, but you would have taken two big, you know, connection to two big brand opponents. And plus run through, you know, again, I don't, I, I don't know what the AAC is going to look like for sure. We, I mean, this is all hypothetical. But I, I, I could see they're going to have to be a top 25 team, maybe at least maybe one on the road before they get to a conference title game. So that could yeah. be three wins over top 25, you know, teams that end up in, your, in, the, in the CFP's top 25. I mean, if Ohio seems- State is 12 and 1. Ohio State might be, like, in the top six. It seems to me that they would have done exactly what the committee wants a team to do. Like, if, if you really beat a 12-1 and Ohio State team, and I kind of think that if Ohio State lose Cincinnati, it's probably a sign they're not going to go 12-1. and But in your scenario, that would be one of the best wins anybody in the country would have had that year. So, as I said in the mailbag, I think the team that could have really tested this a few years ago was Houston. They beat Oklahoma soundly in the opener. They crushed Louisville later in the season. Both of those teams were ranked number three in the country at the time they played them, but they didn't come close to going undefeated. They lost a couple games in conference. If that team had gone undefeated, that would have been a really strong case. So are you going to Vegas to bet the, bet, bet the house on Cincinnati? No, and in fact, we have another question um, that's, that's uh, also Cincinnati-related. Are these your neighbors all chiming in on the audible? What is going on here this week? No, these are not my neighbors as far as I know. You know, I haven't lived in Cincinnati in 25 years, so it would be hard for that to be the case, Bruce, unless you're saying that there's a lot of Cincinnati Bearcat fans here in Sunnyvale, California. I'm not saying that. Mark from Pittsburgh, Stu and Bruce, during your discussion of the top 25 in the coaches' poll, both of you pegged UCF as being overrated. However, Stu mentioned both Fresno State and Cincinnati as underrated teams. Boise State is sitting right outside the top 25 and probably jump in with a win or Florida State in week one. Army also got a lot of votes and is ranked 30th, but I'm not sure they count as a group of five team. They do not. Who would you choose as your preseason pick to represent the group of five? We might as well go there. We're close to the season. Who is your New Year's Six group of five team this year? 
I'm going to say Cincinnati. We talked about them a lot. They have a very athletic team. I think that they're coming off of a big breakout year. I mean, the other team I really like is also in, in that side, and that's Memphis. I think Brady White's really good. They have really good skill talent. I think Mike Norvell's done an excellent job there. Their non-conference is no springboard, meaning you know they play Ole Miss, which I, I think Ole Miss is going to really struggle this year. I think they play Southern and South Alabama. I forget if it, you know, it just doesn't give them a huge push. Now they do get Cincinnati at home, but I would say probably Cincinnati, but Memphis is definitely on my radar. Cincinnati's my pick as well, so now we know it's not going to happen. They'll probably go eight and four, but at the very least, they're my pick to win the American. And if you win that conference, you're probably going to be on the very, very short list of teams. Boise State's interesting because this is the first time in a long time that they don't know who their quarterback's going to be. You know, they had Brett Rippon was a four-year starter. You know, obviously, Kellen Moore was not long before that. Um, we have no idea who's going to be Boise State's quarterback this season. But I, they have at least, you know, you know they're going to be pretty good. And that Florida State game is, a, is the kind of game that if you win it, and if Florida State doesn't go 5-7 and seven again, that's going to help you with those playoff committee rankings. I like your Memphis choice. I mentioned Fresno State as being underrated, but I do acknowledge that Fresno State lost a bunch, including their quarterback. So... What about Utah State? They lost their coach, but they still love, have the I star love Jordan Love. Yeah, yeah, he's a terrific player. They play LSU. You know, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think that love the quarterback, but I just think it's a you have a coaching transition there. I'm not I'm not as sold. I think they'll be good, but I I don't see them doing what they did last year. All right, as always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. The mailbag, by the way, we get more and more entries every week. I'm loving it. It means that the season's about to start. You guys are very engaged. You have a lot of questions. Bring them on, and we'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octave. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over here.